I'm reading from the Holden, Holman Standard Bible. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to draw near in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do. For they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty in speak to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. For dreams result from much work and a fool's voice from many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, fear God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance again to turn to your word. And as always, we pray that you would incline our heart. Perhaps we have come here and we don't want to hear a word from you. And yet this text says what matters most is that we listen to you. And so, Father, I pray for your provision. I pray that you would help us to not just hear what's said in this text, but, Father, we pray for the grace to live it. That we would worship you rightly, that we would not offer religious ritual that's meaningless or vanity, as the preacher says in this text. Father, we pray that across our city today, your word would go forth and be clear, and that you would move in power. And we are grateful for having this scripture in our language, and we are mindful of those who still do not. Would you continue to send out laborers to translate your word so that all may know you rightly? As we come now to your word, Father, we pray for your spirit to empower our listening now. Please work receptivity into our hearts and minds. And then for your spirit to empower our living of this text from this moment forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I would say just a quick word to the pastoral staff that I think our Father's Day gifts were a success because I was texted from the nursery saying, hey, we want those. And that... <laughs> has never happened with any book we've had. They've, they've, they've never texted and asked like Paul, bring the books. They've, they've not done that. And so they sent me emojis with chicken wings and other things in them. So, and moms, I hope the books we gave you are, are going really well for you. So I want to say that. If it's your first Sunday with us, we've been walking through Ecclesiastes. We believe nothing is better for God's people than God's word. And we've made it all the way to Ecclesiastes 5 at this point. And we kind of joked last Sunday to say that in the summer you have folks that are in and out. We see that a little bit here this Sunday. Uh, folks that are, uh, you may miss a chapter or whatever, but in Ecclesiastes, whatever you missed, it was meaningless too. And so... As we've, we've seen that pleasure was meaningless and work meaningless, that, that what it means is that in itself they cannot provide the lasting gain that only Christ can provide. 
Ecclesiastes in a sentence is that everything is meaningless without Jesus. That it's futile. That it, there's a vanity to it. And, and we'll see here today that he's going to turn his sights now on even worship. And that worship without Jesus is vain, vanity, that it's, it's futile. There's a meaningful worship and there's a meaningless worship. And I guess one good question as we start is what are we doing today? Which one are we providing? Which one are we offering a meaningful or meaningless worship? Uh, when I was a single guy, it, it was, you know, you just had to wash your clothes and wash, wash your dishes and paper plates are a great invention. I'm thankful for Thomas Edison and his work there. And, uh, you make decisions on a whim. What, what do I want to do today? But then as you, as you grow and the Lord has entrusted us, our quiver is certainly crowded. I'm, I'm not sure if Tara thinks it's completely full yet or not. She still has her heart open to adoption, and, and we're praying for her husband. And so we, uh, the quiver is certainly crowded, and, and all that means is that we make preparations for everything we do. You can't just pick up and go out of town with four children, especially four children that need inhalers and EpiPens and uh, creams. And, like, we have bags that are just medicine bags, you know. I always show up at camp, and when like the boys go with me to camp, like they're bags, and they're like, how, well, how many people? It's, oh, it's just me and him. This is just all our stuff. But Mama is so good. Tara's so good. Snack bags, you know. And uh, I can remember... Oh, la la, are we having a discussion here? Okay, yeah. Okay, good. We'll just have a lesson here. Different. Hey, the first point is listen. No. Words befuse the second one. But yes, <laughs> this is my sister, if you're worried. That's my sister. No, don't worry. Uh, and we do. She's right. We have bags for our dogs. So we travel around. Matter of fact, we, she kept the dogs and we went to load them up and it took me three trips. So. Anyways, all that to say that we make preparations. We never just pick up and go usually, and, and that's including even to the movies. We make preparations for when we go to the movies. If we don't bring snacks, we stop at the Exxon, and we, we get some snacks, and we put them in Tara's Big Leopard purse, including 99-cent ICs. And I know that some of you are going to be unlike Planet Fitness. I've entered into the judgment zone already from you, but that's okay. We, we, we bring these, and... Uh, and, and have a plan. And I got to admit, when Tara doesn't go to the movies with us, I probably look strange bringing the Big Leopard purse, but Dave Ramsey's proud. So, you know, we also make a plan for what we will purchase there. We purchase the large popcorn and then get four or five of the little popcorn tray, the little hot dog trays and spread it out, you know. And, and we do that because you get a free refill with the large popcorn, which it's really not a free refill, is it? When you've paid $8,000 for that already. <laughs> It's really not for you should get like 40 refills on that rig, right? So we'll refill it and then whatever's left we use in snacks for our kids lunches, you know, during the week. And usually somewhere around the best part of the movie is when Tara turns and says, hey, go get the refill, you know? I've missed key points of many movies. I have no idea what actually occurred because our little piranhas are sending the trays back going, more please, more please. And so uh, we go there. And, and if I were uh, being honest uh, about this, uh, I also have a desire for two other things when we go to the movies. I want to be comfortable and I want to be entertained, right? I am going to confess to you guys, I really love these reclining loungers that they're putting in. You know what I'm talking about? Who knew that I would love it so much? You sleep great through it. And it's, it's also, I love that they call them loungers. Like everything in my heart says yes, you know, to that. And I will also confess that when there's a theater that, is, that does not have the loungers, I'm like, mm, I don't know, boo, let's not go to that one. You know, I'm like, 
go back to seats that don't recline, that aren't heated. Who are we, the Flintstones? You know, and so can't do it. I can't go back to the regular seats. And I, and I, I want to be entertained. I don't want to be bored. I, I prefer it not be too serious because life is pretty serious, right? So when I go to the movie, I want it to be more of a, an escape, lots of laughs, you know. So anyone, let's go to the movie. You ready to go to the movie now? You're like, yes, let's do it. I found myself this week thinking about that because of Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. It says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And as I as encountered this text, I found myself asking, I guess under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, if some of us give more thought and energy in preparing to go to a movie or a sports event or to a meal or to the gym to work out or to many other activities, then we actually give energy and thought in preparing to gather for worship. I wonder if we, we put more energy into you know packing for our trip or, or going to do this activity. Uh, even when we did organized mass chaos, I mean, we all knew we had needed extra towels. We knew things that were things that we put thought in to have for our children. There's a pastor in Tallahassee who, nearly every Saturday on social media, posts that Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. And his point is that whatever we do on Saturday is going to affect and impact the actions we take on Sunday. And dads, no one is more responsible for helping our families prepare for our corporate gatherings than us. Uh, I was late this morning coming to our elder meeting, which is not always unusual, but part of it is uh, I don't want to leave just Tara to have to get our children ready. I want to make sure that I'm trying to make sure they're, they're dressed and they're fed. I don't want to be just going out the door and putting all of that on her to get four children ready, especially when we were had young children. Uh, hey, babe, I'm going to church. We'll see you there, right? And she's covered in vomit, you know. And so I don't want to be that dad, even as pastor. I want to be able to help my wife uh, make sure that the, the children can be there. Uh, the reason that we send out a tentative preaching calendar is we want to give you an opportunity to pray and read through the scripture with your family before you come so that you can be impacted by the Holy Spirit even before we encounter this word now. And preparing for worship may involve reconciling some relationships in our home before we gather in this room. May involve reconciling some relationships with others before we come here. And we need to model that. And so I wonder if we give more thought to what we will say to others that we know will be here than what we'll say to the Lord when we gather in this room. I wonder if we put more energy into how we present ourselves to others than how we will present ourselves to the Lord as we, as we gather and we sing and we give and we listen. I also wonder if, like me at the movies, if we have a desire when we gather for worship mainly to be comfortable and entertained, mainly to, to, to have my preferences above all. Dr. Aiken says the church has become all about us. The music and the programs are not about worshiping God or ministering to people, but rather about my desires and likes. I couldn't wait to get here this morning because I've been doing camps and I couldn't wait to get here because I knew we would sing God-centered songs, not me-centered songs. And that our songs would be driven by substance and not just chord progressions. And not just repeating till I really, really feel it now. I really, really feel it. I'm so grateful for Mitch and his leadership and and singing the word. We often ask though, and it, maybe it's not us, but, but I, I'm sure it is some of us, did I like the sermon? Was it too long? Was it too academic? Was my seat comfortable? Was the room too cold, too warm, just right? Did I get the seat behind the pole or the one where the roof leaks? 
It was the music, the kind of music I like, where all my preferences met. Dr. Aiken goes on to say that entire worship services are planned around the thoughts and concerns of the worshiper rather than the one being worshipped. You can know that because when I was going through worship, there was a book written by Sally Morgan, going through seminary, there was a book written by Sally Morgenthaler called Worship Evangelism. And it was, it was driven toward what was then called the seeker movement, that we need to plan our services around seekers. Maybe we should plan them around the one who seeks. Make sure that we put him for and above all. I remember that when I read The Supremacy of God in preaching from uh, John Piper, that he, the, the, the thought of what our people need more than anything else is to behold God's greatness and goodness. They need God to be lifted up. They need Isaiah 40, behold your God, that this is what our hearts need. It was the first time I'd ever encountered that. The first time I'd ever had that thought. So much of the preaching that I grew up under was, what, we, what do you all want to hear? And what do we think you need? Not realizing that what we need more than anything is to see God rightly, to know him for who he is. Worship often just becomes all about us, our desires, our likes, our preferences, and what we want. And that's, there's a word for that in the Bible. What is it? Oh, I got it. Idolatry. That's what the word is. It's all about me. Do you know why we give people the book, What is a Healthy Church, when they visit here? Because we know not all of them are going to land here with us. But what we are concerned is not all of them know what they should be looking for. So often we're driven by preferences rather than biblical precepts. Of what God says worship should be. It becomes, what do I want? What do I want out? Do I want drums or no drums? Do I want a piano and organ that duke it out during the offering? What Do I want a choir? Do I want robes? Do I... Do we, what, what, what is it that we have? And, and most important is, what does God say worship should be? And so as I often say on Wednesday nights, that as we gather, I'm in need every Wednesday of having my heart recalibrated to God and his goodness and his gospel. And Ecclesiastes 5 is a recalibration of this. And it's a recalibration about worship that many of us need. We're being called to examine our motives and our hearts as we gather and what we're going to see is that the Lord has never required hypocritical hallelujahs from anyone. He's never asked for passionate pretense when offering him praise. And we are not free to worship God in any way we want. We are bound by what he's revealed of himself and what he desires in his text. This is what shapes and moves our worship. And so Ecclesiastes 5, put in a sentence, I put it there at the top of your notes for you. When we gather to worship the Lord... We are called not to be foolish or fake, rash or rambling, but with holy fear we're to listen to God and follow through on all our commitments to him. That's the essence of this text, that when we gather to worship the Lord, we're called not to be foolish or fake, rash or rambling, but with holy fear we're to listen to God and follow through on all our commitments to him. This is not the most difficult text we've encountered in Ecclesiastes. This one is actually pretty straightforward. And the question is just, are we living it or not? As we begin in, in verse 1, in the text we've already seen, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, we get our first truth from this text is that worship involves preparation. So we've seen in the previous chapters that the preacher or Solomon has been making observations of people's lives and, and what they're doing. And now he shifted his focus to the temple. He's people watching the temple. And as he does so, he sees folks who go in and they're not sincere in their worship. And, 
His concern is they're robbing God of the honor and reverence that are due him and that their acts of worship are just routine, insincere, hypocritical. We're just here because we're supposed to be here. Or we're here because God isn't what I want. I want God to give me what I want. God is a means of furthering my own agenda rather than God being my agenda. God being the end himself. And so he sees these things. And so he says, watch out. Be careful because if you think that you can approach God and he doesn't care about your heart in that, you're wrong. That's what he's saying. He, he doesn't care just about the motions. I saw one time uh, I, was, I was preaching at a youth thing outside of uh, somewhere in Baton Rouge, I think in a meet. And I saw this teenager literally yell at her mother, slam the car door, and then go in. And then I kind of watched her. And, and in the... You know, as soon as the song started, she was one of the first to raise her hands and to close her eyes. And I just thought, man, I, I don't know that situation, but, but I know this. We can't, we can't pretend that uh, when these relationships aren't right, that this one is. That he cares that we be reconciled, that, that we are in right order with one another, and especially him. And so he's saying, guard your house. Of course, when he speaks of the house of God, he means the temple. And Solomon built the temple. And uh, there were generally five purposes. Another has put together this little list for us, but five purposes for the temple. First was just the place. The temple was the place of connection between God's home in heaven and our home on earth. This is where they were going to go to meet God. They weren't foolish enough to think that God was only here. They understood that God was in heaven and that God was omnipresent. But this was the particular place they could go and they could meet God. His presence. So place and then presence. The temple was the place where God's presence dwelt on earth in the Holy of Holies in its center. And then the people is the place where God's people could gather together in God's presence. You know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, here's all the people. We learned about it, VBS, growing up. So you have place and presence and people. You have the priests who are overseeing the ministry and acting as intercessors and mediators between God and his people. And then you have propitiation. They're bringing a sacrifice for their sins. The bottom line is the temple was a reminder to them, you cannot approach God in any way you want. You cannot run into here at midnight and do whatever you want. Only one man could go into the Holy of Holies one time of year. And even then they had to tie a rope around his ankle in case God struck him dead so that they could drag him out of there without having to go in there themselves. And so the temple was a reminder of God's holiness and your lack of it. And what it took to, to come before him in reverence and, and all. And though the temple was torn down, we still, are, we still gather. And of course, in one place, now we are the dwelling place. But Ephesians 2 says we're also being built together as the dwelling place. And so when we go to the house of God, what we mean is where we gather together for corporate worship. And what Solomon is going to say here is there is a right way and a wrong way to do it. And he's going to talk a lot about the foolish. He holds no punches here. He's like, they're fools. Just because you go to church and you sing, it doesn't mean you're not a fool. It's what he's saying in this text. So in each of these principles, there's a foolish way to do it, and there's a faithful way to do it. And the foolish way to come to worship is without any preparation, is without giving any thought, is without any prayer. The faithful way to do that is to prepare, and it's meant to be a repeated practice. He says, when you go, that you're going to be going, and as you go, this should be the practice that you do. A couple questions that you could ask yourself. What do I need to do to make sure I'm not just going through the motions? 
You ever had a Sunday or Wednesday you came in this room and just went through the motions? Pretty sure I've had some and I've preached them. All right? And I'm not, uh, I'm susceptible to these things as well. So what do I need to do to make sure I'm not just going through the motions? Am I more desirous of pretending rather than being real? Do I want to fool those that are sitting around me? Do I want to not be transparent with them? Am I ready to listen to God speak through his word? That's why I pray each week, God incline our hearts, because I know that my honest prayer during the week is not just help me to know what you want. My most honest prayer in the week is help me to want what you want. Help me to want to do that. And sometimes when I come in here, if I don't have his work in my life, I don't want to hear what he has to say either. And so the question is, are we ready to hear him speak? And is there anything I need to do to maximize attentiveness to God speaking through his word? What, what do I need to do? So these are just questions. And, and so do we, I don't know. You know. I don't know how many of you actually read the text before you come in here. I don't know how many of you are gathering. I have learned a lot as a pastor. I was able to, to share with youth ministers about, you know, what part of the reason that our life groups, that children and youth all study the same Bible passages because I want to give you chances to lead your family. I don't want you to get in the car and turn around and say, what'd you study? We want to put you on the same page as family units so that you can lead your families. But I have learned pastorally that I can do everything to line those opportunities up, but God alone shifts your hearts. God alone shifts your hearts to the responsibilities that are yours. And so the very first thing he says here is not, hey, run on in. God's your homeboy. He says first, guard your steps. Be very careful when you go to the house of God. That worship involves preparation. It doesn't mean that there aren't spur of the moments. When, when I learned that our second child had died, I would tell you that the Holy Spirit empowered me. I stood up from the bench that I was on, and the Spirit empowered me to say what Job said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. There are moments where worship is instant, empowered by the Spirit and using His Word in our lives. But what He's driving at here is more the weekly coming together. It's never meant to just be routine. It's never meant to be without thought and regard for what are we doing? What are we gathering for? Whom are we gathering for? So it involves preparation. Truth number two is that in worship, God desires our full attention rather than our foolish sacrifice. The rest of verse 1 says, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing, that they are doing evil. And so, uh, be focused on his word. Don't be foolish or fake. And he wants our full attention to, to listen. When Peter and James and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter's just running his mouth, which was his spiritual gift. He's just running his mouth. God literally booms and interrupts Peter and says, this is my son. And then he says this, listen to him. Right? That's where Peter was like, well, I was. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no. Peter falls down and he gets it. Right? He's just silent for once. Right? And so there's this picture, listen, listen to him. And he says, there's this thought then, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Well, if we're going to listen, how are we going to listen to God? And I love what Philip Ryken says, that whenever we go to worship, we enter the presence of a holy God who has gathered his holy people to hear his holy word. This is how we listen to God. 
there's going to be something to hear and that's what we assume that's what we hope it's why we pray for our sister churches across the city because wherever people go into worship they don't need to hear a word of man today they need to hear the word of god and so we pray that god would send his word out across our city even and so the preacher here assumes they need to hear something what they need to hear is the word it's why we say nothing is better for god's people than god's word it's why we want to sing the word it's why we want to read the word it's why we want to pray the word it's why we want to listen and preach the word and why in the spirit's power we want to go out and live the word my mentor dr shaddix was sitting on the front row of the church where he was serving as an associate pastor the lead pastor got up that morning and and when it came time for the sermon he said i don't have a word for you today and Dr. Shaddix is just looking up at him and he says, I, I don't have a word. I prayed and asked the Lord to give me a word and I never felt any promptings or leadings. He said, I don't have a word. So he says, do any of you have a word for us? No one responded. So he said, I, I guess the Lord doesn't have a word for us this week. And so he literally prayed and dismissed them. And Dr. Shaddix said, I sat on the front row and he said, I was literally clutching my Bible. And he says, you don't have a word. You have 66 words from the Lord right here. And Shaddix would always drive home. He says, we don't wait for the fuzzies in order to pick a text. He says, it is all God's word. Wherever you pick, preach it. It's his word. Preach the word. And so Solomon says that there's some idea that when you come together, there's something to hear. This is why we, we hope that as our children and our teenagers grow up, we know they're not all going to end up in church here. We hope that by modeling what it means for the word to be in a primary position, that when they end up a part of another church, they'll know to pick one where the word is preached, where the word is sung, where the word is prayed. Because well, the last thing that drunks need is wisdom from other drunks. The last thing we need to hear is the reverberation of just our lack of wisdom. That's why Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. We need to hear the word of God. We need him to speak. In order to do that, we have to listen. The most important question in worship is not, what do I want to say to God? The most important question then is, what does he want to say to me? What does he want to say to me through his word? Zach Eswine has written and says, when we gather, we keep trying again to hear God teach us to listen and to reorient our lives under the sun around his voice rather than ours, his character rather than ours, his grace rather than our performance, his ways rather than that which ransacks us under the sun. When God is present, people become quieter, not out of fear of being abused, but out of recognition that true good power, beauty, and wisdom have entered the room. If God was sitting at a table and a question was asked, he's the first one you're going to look to to answer. He says, if you're humble. Some of us may sit at the table and be God and be like, I got this, God. You just take this question off. I got it. I know it, right? We are not made quiet because God has a temper and we don't want to set him off. We are quiet because God opposes the proud and he disrupts the hypocrite. We need to hear him. And there are appropriate times to cast all our cares and concerns and thoughts upon the Lord in worship. But worship primarily is his communicating of his cares and his concerns and his commands and his character and his cross to us that we might hear and receive. So it isn't about our preferences, but it is about his precepts. And listening doesn't require stiffness or a funeral dirge. 
We can have joyful music and instruments. What's being attacked here is just verbosity and impatience and arrogance. Ah, I got it. I don't need this. Here's, here's some th- here are my thoughts, God. I slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night, and I've got some thoughts for you that, that maybe will bless you. He says the problem is for those who don't listen, he says there's this other group. So the faithful are those who listen and submit. The foolish group are the ones who offer sacrifices of fools. They, they are they're doing their own thing and in the end doing evil. And the worst part is they don't even know it. So how many people are gathering on Sundays and they're doing evil and they don't even know it? They don't realize that through their routine, through their refusal to submit to what God says or to listen to his word, ultimately they're doing what's evil. Perhaps they're thinking they can impress him. What you need to know is that God desires our submission more than our sacrifice. That's why he says, listen. He wants our submission more than, oh God, look at what I'm doing for you. He's like, let me tell you what I've done. Let me tell you what I'm doing. Let me tell you who I am. So submission more than sacrifice. Those who are going through this could be those who are going through the motions. So it's just mindless. This is what we do at this point in the service. This is what we do at this point in the service. This is what we do now that the service is over. They could also be those who aren't just mindless, those who are manipulating. God, if I do this, will you do this for me? God, if I give you this much of whatever, will you then make this go well for me? And so there's this manipulation. The fool thinks he or she can deceive God. And the fool thinks he or she's doing good, but in reality, they're doing evil. So the key to worship is listening and obeying God. We can come to as many worship gatherings as we want, and we can raise our hands in the air. But if we're not obeying God's word, we have a worship problem. It's not just a music problem. It's not just a uh, worship is with our life. So the faithful listen, but the foolish participate in religious ceremony attempting to justify themselves. So the question is, are we listening? And are we listening more than we're even speaking to him? So worship involves preparation and it involves full attention given to his word rather than just foolish sacrifice. Truth number three is that in worship, God desires for our words to be offered with restraint and reference rather than rashness and rambling. It says in verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God's in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. D.L. Moody once talked about people's prayers. And he says, Some men's prayers need to be cut short on both ends and set on fire in the middle. I loved it. John Bunyan said, In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. What we want to be careful is that we're not just telling God what we think he wants to hear and worship. That we're just rushing to do that. Have you ever had children who told you what they thought you wanted to hear just to get out of whatever it was or to get what they want? You ever had that? And so what Solomon is saying, we cannot be those children to God. Oh, here's what God's, here's the right answer. But from here only and not from here and not from our lives. I loved a, a picture that another gave. God is not like the recording artist who, who's listening to our prayers through the headphones. God is like the doctor who's listening to our prayers with a stethoscope. And so he hears the heart. He's examining the heart and the things that we say to him. And the foolish are those who just talk and talk and think the more words they say, God will be pleased or eventually they'll just break him down, wear him down, and he'll yield and cry, uncle, and give in. Every time we open our mouths, 
it's an opportunity to reveal our hearts. It's what Jesus taught us. And so the questions are, do we really mean what we say when we stand and worship in the house of God? Sometimes when I worship and we, and we sing these songs, there are times that I raise my hands because I want to declare the truth and the praise of that. And there are sometimes when I, I do my hands here because it's the prayer that I'm praying. Those words that we're leading, to, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wonder, Lord. And so my hands are in, more in this position of acknowledging this is a true prayer for me right now, Lord. Take my heart and seal it. Take my heart and seal it, right? And expressing it. So do we mean what we say when we stand and worship? It's easy to read a psalm, sing a hymn, confess a creed, or even preach a sermon without even thinking about what it means. It's possible to do these things. Simply repeating pious words doesn't mean it comes from a pious heart. So God is not asking you to fake it here today. He's not asking you to pretend. And then you also need to know God does not need our counsel on anything. He doesn't need you to lecture him. He says, don't be rash, so don't just be reactive and, and loud with your words or hasty to utter a word before God. He says, for God's in heaven and you're on earth, in case you've forgotten your place, one of the things that worship does is it reminds us who he is and who we are, where he is and what he is and where we are and what we are. Isaiah says in verse 40, he asks questions. He says, Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who's gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Who's directed the spirit of the Lord or who gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? I love when God wants to discipline uh, Job's sorry counselors. He asked him, hey, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? How far was it? Surely you know, right? Surely you've been around for a long time. Answer me, right? I love when, when God just lays into him. And then, as many of you know, one of my favorite questions in all of Job 38 through 40 is, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? To which I always answer, no. I got no idea when that happens. You know what I'm saying? It could be happening right now to the glory of God, right? And it's just a reminder of, I'm charged over even when Billy Goat and his lady have babies, right? That... I'm over all of these details, and here's who I am versus here's who you are. So the, the key is, it's not about the number of words that we say, and God doesn't need our counsel. You know, when we're in situations where the question that we're asking God is, why? Why? He doesn't need our counsel for how we think is the best way to go out of it. The best thing that we can do is we can just say what Isaiah says, hear my Lord. Do what's most glorifying to you through this. I'm listening. I'm not trying to figure it out. You've already got it figured out. So help me to trust. Help me to listen. Help me to obey. Again, Dr. Aiken says, the answer to your prayer doesn't depend on what you say, how you ask it, how many words you use, or even the formality or casualness of your words. Rather, it depends on the Heavenly Father who knows what's best for you. We have nothing to barter with or to offer God. We just ask with humble hearts and we trust that he answers best. The foolish are rash and rambling with their words, but the faithful practice restraint and reverence. They remember who we are and who he is, where we are and where he is. And he doesn't need our counsel. He needs our trust and obedience, which gets us to truth number four. In worship, God wants us to consider and keep the commandments we make to him. Verse four says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. 
It just keeps coming back to it. Mr. T would love this passage right now. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And so here, if we're, we're called in the first part to be focused on his word and the second part for our words to be few. Now we're being called to be faithful. Be faithful in what we say. How many of you have ever committed something to the Lord and did not keep that commitment? Anyone here? Okay, two of us. Good. The rest of you, really proud of you. So we, we are being called here. Don't make an impulsive promise to God that you have no intention of keeping, especially. Don't, don't try to bribe him and say, I'll do this, Lord, without even thinking that you or you know that you're going to break it. Some of you have done that even in relationships you have. You have made commitments that you knew you weren't going to keep, and that's wrong. He says even more when it's with God that you would make a commitment that you know you're not going to keep. We certainly know it's easier to make a promise than keep it. But it's not just our words here. It's supposed to be reflected then in our lives and the work of our hands. And we should follow through promptly. It says don't delay. Do it now. You should vow. Don't, don't delay. Pay what you vow. Uh, and the, doing that, uh, pr- following through promptly on our commitments is an important part of practical godliness. Or the other phrase I tried to teach you through the years is delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. While we're deliberating, should I do this? Well, the question is, did he say do it? Yes. Okay, then. Yes, you do it now. Uh, In God's power, do what you said you were going to do. Do it now and do it without excuses. So in God's power, do what you said you were going to do. Do it now and do it without excuses. The foolish hastily make promises and pledges and then make excuses for not following through. The faithful consider before they make a commitment and then keep it once they do. He's not saying we should never make a vow. We make vows to each other when we get married. He's not saying that. He's saying don't make them without thinking and don't make them in haste. Don't make them without any intention of keeping it. And then once you do make it, don't offer excuses for, I wasn't going to really do that or here's why I haven't gotten around to it. And so one of the questions that I would ask all of us this morning are we marked more by excuses or obedience? Are we marked more by excuses or obedience? If we are not following through, it is not because we lack the resources from God. God is the one who provides all the grace we need for each day of sanctification. First Peter says that he's provided all we need for life and godliness. Right? And so I hope that our lives are marked by immediate obedience and that we're not foolish. We don't rush in and say... Even, even what Hannah did with Samuel. If you give me a child, I'll give him to you. Or we saw, we've seen foolish commitments. In writing the book of Esther, I wrote of the one in the Old Testament who was, if you'll give me victory, then I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house, which was his daughter. Right? This foolishness that God didn't even ask him to do. He didn't ask him to make this vow. I love what another has said. Sincerity is seen most in simplicity. Let your yes be yes is what Jesus says and your no be no. We make these extra things because we're prone not to keep our word. So we have to really convince people and here we're trying to really convince God. The problem is God already knows really what our heart is and what our level of commitment. And so we don't want to be those who who just make commitments and then we don't honor them. We don't honor them. And here's the last truth. In worship, the fear of God is essential it says in verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. 
So what he's saying, there's a bunch of words and a bunch of dreams do not mean a bunch of action, is what he's saying there. A bunch of words are just meaningless. A bunch of dreams are just meaningless. But God is the one you most fear. And what does it look like to fear? There, there's a phrase that another use calls trembling trust, but it's continual humble submission to God. But in light of this text, you can know that when you're fearing God, it looks like this. You give thought before you gather with him, before you meet with him. There's preparation. You, you're ready to listen to what he says. You, you're limiting your speech so that you can hear his. You're not just trying to overwhelm him with your commitments. And then you're giving him the glory that he deserves, whether it's time, talent, treasure, whatever we have, and whatever we promised to give, we give to him. And so this fear, the wisdom literature, which is what we were in, this is the beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. And what that means is that we see him rightly and we see ourselves rightly. We respond to him appropriately in light of who he is. And so, yes, we are able to draw close, but we know who he is and we know what he can do and we know what he stands for. And, and there should always be this idea of holy reverence and fear it's the same thing C.S. Lewis communicates in, in his tales from Narnia, that, that Aslan is good, but he's not safe. Don't think that you can just traipse all over him. He is good, but he's not safe. I want you to, to turn to Hebrews 10 then for a moment as we move to transition and close. And as you turn to Hebrews 10, if we were to be gut level honest today, which... It does, really doesn't matter, I guess, if you are with me, because the Lord will already know in your own heart. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. They found that out at church one day. One of the most underestimated verses, it says, great fear, cease the congregation. You think so? Yeah, you think so? People are like giving everything they have. Throw it. Wait, bring that plate back around. What I had, right? God knows. He, he sees our hearts. If we were gut level honest, have you ever had... Uh, a service which you gathered and you went through the motions? Anyone? Yeah. So, if we were honest, we, we've already broken what we're being called to in Ecclesiastes 5, which breaking these things then means we're guilty of sin. But let me give you another, another picture. There are pictures in the New Testament of Jesus singing with his disciples. There are pictures of Jesus gathering in, in the temple. He's worshiping. And here's what is incredible. He did it right every time. And he did it fully. And you and I get full credit for that. So for all the times that you and I have gone through the motions, Jesus never once did in his 30 whatever years of life. None of his worship was through the motions. It was real. And this is the amazing hope of the gospel. We get full credit as if all of our arts have always been real. All of ours have always been right and good because of what Jesus has done. Is that not glorious? Is that not our hope even? That when our hands are feeble, his spirit sustains us. And, and Hebrews 10 talks to us about being able to draw near to him and being able to come to his presence. And so beginning in verse 11, it says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, 
He is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What we study in Ecclesiastes 5 isn't meant to deter our drawing near to God. It is meant to cause us to think about how we do that. Of course, our only means of drawing near is, it says here, that we enter the holy places only by the blood of Jesus. And we do so with, with full knowledge that the curtain that we go through, his flesh that he gave. And as we draw near that our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And what a privilege that we have that we are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that God has moved in with us. He doesn't ask us just to, to, to meet him at one spot on all the planet. Jesus said that there's coming a day that his followers will worship him in spirit and truth. And what Ecclesiastes 5 is addressing, he says, Ecclesiastes 5 is addressing worship that is not happening in spirit and truth. It's worship that's routine. It's worship that's manipulative. It's worship that's thinking, maybe I can bargain with God and he'll do. It's worship that's not sincere. And you need to know this. All of that then is worship that's not pleasing to God. Matter of fact, Solomon says, it's foolish. God has never asked for that. In the hope of Christ, though, we should draw near. And as he says here, we draw near together. We draw near together. And most important, what we do, reminding each other what Christ has done and the accent, access that he's granted to us and that we have full credit for the Sundays and Wednesdays that our worship is less than awesome. Jesus has never was. He was always full and right, and we have full credit for that. So we ask for forgiveness, and we move forward in his grace that covers whenever we've just tried to pretend his propitiation has made us pure. In your conclusion there, then, the summary of Ecclesiastes 5, we're to be focused on his word. We're to be few with our words. We're to be faithful to our words. And we're to be fearful in our worship. And I wrote dads, since today's Father's Day, but moms certainly too. We need dads who lead us to be prepared. We need dads and moms who listen to God, who do not lecture God who keep their commitments and who fear and love God. That's the essence of Ecclesiastes 5. You're leading me to be ready to meet with him. You're helping me listen to him. You're showing me how, what it means not to lecture the ancient of days. You're showing me how to keep the commitments even when it hurts. And you're showing me what it means that he's our authority. He reigns. And we follow and we come before him not just with fear, but with great love. One other has said this. Remember, God knows everything. He knows our hearts. When we before him bring our worship, you can't fool him. So take a good look at yourself before you make your next appearance before the Lord. 
and go to listen, not to speak, for he will know just what you need. Why, any fool can spout a lovely prayer or sing a hymn about his faith. His words are mindless like a dream, although to people looking on they seem impressive. Not to God, for words are cheap, just like the dreams you have while you're asleep. God wants your heart, my son, not just a show. Get right with him before you to him go. A couple questions then, means of responding to this text. What does your preparation for gathering in corporate worship look like? Do you ask God to speak to you and your family? Do you ask God to empower the singing and preaching, receiving and living of his word? Perhaps you've been careless in your preparation and now you need his grace to be more consistent and guarding your steps as you approach him in worship. I hope that you will take serious your responsibilities, especially those who've been entrusted to shepherd others, to disciple others, that we give thought, we guard our steps as we get ready to go. Is your priority when you gather here to listen to God or to lecture to him? Are you committed to submitting to him or scolding him? Maybe you need to ask God to help you be more attentive and help you not try to manipulate him or just go through the motions. Maybe that's what you need to confess today. Maybe a lack of preparation, maybe going through the motions. When my heart is cold and desensitized, I beg God to break it. Beg God to break it. Because he doesn't want me to pretend, and I'm grateful for that. Grateful he doesn't want to be manipulated or just rogue, meaningless worship. Are you trying to impress others with what you say rather than expressing simple dependence on God? Are you using a lot of words because you think that's what God wants? He doesn't need that. He's not asked for that. Are there commitments you've made and have either broken them or delayed them? Is there something you need to give to the Lord immediately? Not even before you leave this room. Something you need to yield to Him. And do you have a healthy reverence for the God who... Since the moment he said, let there be light, it's never slept. For the God who chose to create and reigns and works and accomplishes his plan. For the God who knows more things than we have ever known. For the God who saved us from more things than we even knew we were susceptible to. I pray all the time and say, God, thank you for saving me from myself. There are ways that he works in so many days. And I want to confess to you that even this morning, I was tempted to a particular sin. And it was this text that drove me to obedience. That God's a holy God. We should have fear. We shouldn't presume upon grace. We should hold grace precious. We should use grace to put away sin, not to go further into it. And not just because he is sovereign, but because he's father. And he is a father that never disappoints. He is a father that never goes back on his word. He is a father who is always disciplined for the best. Never in out of control anger. And he is a father that has sacrificed more than any father ever could. So I don't want to trample his courts. I want to hold him as precious. And I need my heart recalibrated to what worship is according to God knowing my only hope for it then is his and our prayer in the elder room right before this so many of you will receive Father's Day's presents with gifts that were purchased with money that you provided for that gift and I don't begrudge that with my little ones 
I'm happy when they want to use money that, that we give them to, to bless us with a Christmas gift because they're excited in that. I don't begrudge that because that's what I do every day with the Lord. I love him with the love he pours into my heart. I worship him only with the resources he supplies to do that. What a good father he is that all he expects from us, he provides for us. He doesn't ask you to even worship him in your own strength. You couldn't. He gives that we may be able to do this. And he does so joyfully. I love, I preached Jude Friday night that he is able to present us before his glory with great joy. He's a dad who dads with joy. He adopts us with joy. What a great father. May we never trample his courts without fault. May we never trample it with pretense. May we not be fools. May we be faithful. Father, thank you for your word. We so often need our hearts recalibrated to what worship really is. I'm sorry for the times that we make it about what we want. That we do make it about our preferences instead of your precepts. That we fail to acknowledge what you've revealed. And we, we move more along our desires. I'm sorry, Father, for in any way we've made this morning more about us than, than you. Would you help us to guard our steps as we consider our gathering together? Would you help us to be diligent to prepare? Father, I pray that you would help us to listen. God, I thank you for a conviction of our elders and pastoral staff that as best we can, we want to give your people your word in so many venues. Thank you for Matthew and the family guides he writes so that the, the word can reverberate in our hearts throughout the week. Thank you for life group leaders who help us walk through the word. Thank you for Mitch helping us sing the word. Thank you for elders who consistently pray the word. So, Father, help, help us. You, you say that we gather to listen. Help us to do our absolute best to make sure people can hear your word. And not just one part of the service, but all throughout. They hear your truth. Father, please help us not to lecture you. Help us not try to impress you. Help us not to be rash in our words. You don't need our tantrums. You need our trust. You are the ancient of days. You are in heaven and we are on earth. I'm sorry for every time that we think we know better. All of our sin is a revealing that we think we know better. We choose this. We, we think this path will be better for us in that moment. And it never is. I'm sorry when we fail to acknowledge that you don't just know better. You always know best. So if there have been ways that we've been arguing with you. Would you help us just to listen and submit to you? I'm sorry that unlike you, we break commitments. Israel is such a picture of us. We make a commitment and then break it, get in trouble. Then make a fresh commitment and then break it and then get in trouble. God, I thank you that you don't abandon us. Our greatest confidence is ultimately not in our faithfulness to our commitments, but in your faithfulness to your commitment. But it doesn't mean that we should enter into commitments lightly. We especially shouldn't commit something to you that we know we have no intention of keeping. That's not glorifying to you. You've not asked us to do that. We do it 
because we think we can manipulate you in that moment. Help us to mean what we say to you. That's why each week we ask that you would help us to mean what we sing. Pray that no part of our service would be without our heart. Just going through the motions. Help us to have holy fear of you. To know you rightly. I thank you that you've made a way that no longer do we need one place in Jerusalem to meet with you. For if that were true, then all this today would be vanity. Be meaningless. But now we can be indwelled by your presence. So God, thank you. You've decided to make us the temple and then called us to gather together to be your body. Help us not to neglect that or take that lightly. Help us to long for you to speak and then give us the power to listen. Help us not just to be informed, but help us to be transformed. I thank you that Jesus has always worshipped rightly. With every song that he sung, he meant it. With every scroll that he read, he meant it. And there was nothing he did without his heart. And I thank you, God, that you've chosen to give us full credit for that. And to lay on him all of our fake and meaningless religion. As if he had committed it. The gospel is the greatest news for the worst people. May we hold that precious. May we readily admit there's nothing in us. It is all of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thank mm-hmm. you.